So we've talked about this before on the show, but there are two main ways to market a product, let's say. Number one, you create a product and then try and figure out who might want that product. Or the, the better, more productive way of doing it is to look around at your audience and see who has a problem that needs solving and then craft a product to be the solution to that problem. Again, two main ways to, uh, to market a product or a service or experience, and the latter is by far the better way of doing it. What that requires you to do is marketing research. Today's episode, today's interview is all about how to do research, how to get better answers by asking better questions. I'm sitting down with Dr. Ernest Baskin. We're here to talk all about it. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast dedicated entirely to the hospitality industry. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build a more profitable and a more sustainable business. I also work directly with operators all over the world through my group coaching programs to address and overcome the specific challenges we face in our industry. Curious to learn more about those programs? Simply set up a free 45-minute strategy session with me at restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Let me show you how simple it can be to run a profitable restaurant. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. Despite easing restrictions, we are all still strapped into the roller coaster ride of fluctuating food prices. That, combined with continuing staffing challenges, makes it more important than ever to control your costs to remain profitable. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food and labor costs in real time, so you can make informed decisions in the moment rather than weeks after the period ends. By automating your invoice processing and totally digitizing your back office, Margin, and Margin Edge saves your team hours on paperwork and gives you instant insights to manage your prime costs. Take control of those costs with real-time data. Best of all, listeners of the show get to try Margin Edge free for 30 days. No contract, no setup fee, free and unlimited training and support. To learn more, simply visit marginedge.com slash chip. That link is also in the show notes. So my guest on today's show is Dr. Ernest Baskin. He's an associate professor at uh, St. Joseph's University as part of the uh, food marketing program, which I know very well. I was introduced to him uh, by taking his class. It was all about marketing research. Uh, it was one of the... Uh, one of the more influential courses that I took at my time when I was going to get my MBA. So I'm thrilled to be able to welcome him to the show. Dr. Baskin, welcome. Thank you, Chip. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure to have you. So uh, your pedigree sort of speaks for itself, but I'll sort of toot your horn for you. Um, you uh, did your undergrad at University of Pennsylvania. I guess you got two different degrees there. <laughs> Cultural anthropology and a BS in economics from Wharton School. Um, from there, I guess you uh, you slummed it and you went to Yale uh, to pursue your master's and eventually your PhD. Um, 
why did you target those schools? Yeah, so over the course of my career, one of the things that I really enjoyed was thinking about consumer preferences, how consumers make the choices that they do, and also how to influence those choices. And I sort of started learning about that during my undergrad career. And in my graduate school, I picked a place where I knew there were folks that were really, really working hard on those specific questions. Uh, if any of you have heard of Danny Kahneman, who famously won a Nobel Prize in economics, uh, talking about choice and prospect theory, his, one of his students was my advisor. So I kind of like the fact that there is a chain of lineage from a uh, Nobel Prize winner to myself. For uh, sure. So, so then... I mean, there's so much that I learned from you. There's so much that I hope that you'll be able to impart to the listeners of this show as we start talking about consumer behavior, uh, because consumer behaviors are uh, are going through a huge overhaul right now as we're watching uh, habits, routines um, get upended. Um, what about that particularly interested you at such a young age? So I think the biggest thing that interested me about consumer behavior is how malleable it is. So people don't just have a set viewpoint that can be perfectly predicted 100% of the time. It's affected by the environment that they're in. And I think that's a very powerful tool for uh, food marketers and marketers just in general to really understand we can structure the environment around our consumers and get them to pick different things, things that might be better for them or things that we want them to pick that might be better for us. And sort of figuring out what those levers might be in a variety of situations was my reason for kind of diving deep into this and learning more about it. So... You go, you get all these fancy degrees, you left school. What did you do after school? Talk, talk to the, the listeners just a little bit about that because a lot of the work you did, I found so, so very fascinating. Yeah, so I sort of actually jumped around in industry. So I did a little bit of work in the pharmaceutical space. So I did market research for a company called ZS Associates, uh, both on the qualitative side and the quantitative side. And then I uh, jumped into uh, St. Joseph's University. So I've been here for quite a while now, uh, basically helping build the future generation of both restaurant and uh, food industry marketers. In while doing that, I've also worked with a lot of companies to get them to think critically about who their consumers are, how to target them better, and also how to influence their buying behaviors. Uh, lots of cool projects in that space that I'm happy to talk about if we have a little bit of time. I do. We do have time. It's the best part of this show is that I always say that nobody just stumbles on this show. Like if you accidentally start listening to this, if it's not for you, you turn it off pretty quickly. And I love that because uh, the group that we have is really uh, passionate. It sits on the edge of their seat as they're listening to this. Um, and I think really try to take something from every every single episode. And I invited you uh, to be on here because of a, a lot of the interesting work that you do. Um, I want to stick a pin in that for just one second because you hit something really important that that is going to, I hope, become sort of a theme for this entire interview, which is that, you know, understanding consumer behavior, why people do what they do and how we can help uh, influence that and understanding who we should be targeting 
I think these are two areas that, uh, at least in the restaurant industry, and especially with uh, independent operators, which is mainly uh, who listens to this show, right? Small mom and pop shops, family run businesses. And there's this feeling that, oh, we don't do that. We can't afford a big marketing budget. So we, we don't do that. And I want to change that impression. And over the course of this conversation, I want them to have a better understanding of how they can apply these ideas um, directly to their business and 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 find some uh, actionable ways that they can do that. So that's where I hope to go. Now we stuck a pin in something, let's go back to it. Talk to me about some of the really cool stuff because I was sort of privy to some of these case studies that you shared with uh, the class and so, Talk about some of that, some of the the work that you've done, because you've worked with some pretty big companies doing really interesting projects. Yeah, so one of the really cool projects that I'm most proud of is a project that I worked on with uh, the Google Food team. And so, for those of you that don't know, one of the key things that differentiates Google from a lot of other companies is they essentially have free food for all of their workers, and it's really awesome, and it helps get especially now it helps get their workers into the workplace to interact uh, with others as opposed to keeping them all working remotely. So it's a really, really nice benefit. It's a really nice perk. The thing that they're most proud of in regards to their food program is that they give a lot of choice. So that means if you're working at Google, you have the ability to pretty much eat in any way that you want. So you can eat very poorly or you can eat very well. <laughs> and so when you're looking at this from a company perspective, obviously you want an employee to make the best choices for themselves without dictating the fact that they should be making the best choices for themselves. Right. So you don't want to revolt on, the, on your hands, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, if they eat crappy food, they're going to uh, increase your healthcare costs. So not great. So one of the things that we did was we actually looked at their kitchen placements and we took a look at the ways that these uh, kitchen, these micro kitchens, as they're called, were actually set up architecturally. And we noticed that one of the reasons that people came to these micro kitchens was for drinks. So they came a lot to grab a tea, they came a lot to get grab coffee, they came a lot to grab a soda. And in some of the micro kitchens, the setup was that the unhealthy snacks were located close to those things. In other kitchens, it was slightly further away. And in a few of them, you had kind of both depending on which direction you approach the micro kitchen from. So over the course of essentially observing these workers, what we found was that folks that had the unhealthy options presented closer to them wound up eating more uh, of them. Whereas folks that had them, and in this case, it was something small, like six feet further away, uh, right. significantly decreased the amount that they ate, which I think was great and is a great example of just something simple as changing the architecture or changing the placement of things can really influence what people are doing uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. And that's very applicable in the restaurant setting because in the restaurant setting, you have a lot of control, uh, especially on your menu. And so the analog to the architecture of what people are choosing is how is your menu laid out, right? Have you given any thought to the strategy behind how is your menu laid out? Because I've seen, and unfortunately, some very, very 
poor menu choices where everything is just in one giant list. Nothing really flows from anything else. Nothing stands out. And that is, makes it difficult for people to choose. But what you can do is you can employ a similar thing by making certain things stand out, making certain things easier to find, and that will actually stir people to those choices. So for example, if you have a really nice pasta dish that you have a higher margin on, that is a dish that you want to highlight, that is a dish that you may want to bold, that is a dish that you may want to put higher in the menu so that it gets seen earlier by the consumer. All of those things move the needle. And without thinking about it, without testing it, you don't really know. Yeah. Uh, I, I love it because, uh, you know, whenever we, so I do this exercise, I call it this, the menu matrix, right? Where we look at all of our food costs, we do all of our food co costs, and we understand uh, what items are most profitable. And then we lay over a product mix so we see what items are most popular. And armed with those two, when we lay those two results over top of each other, we, we can tell what's popular and profitable. And then we've got all, and then, you know, by virtue, we also know uh, what's unpopular and unprofitable. And then we, um, and then we know more, and then we've got all kinds of tools at our disposal. The layout, the fonts, the colors, the pictures we choose, the descriptions we um, we select, what we put on the menu, what we take off the menu, um, how much we charge for certain items. There's so many tools available to us uh, when we start using our menu um, as a sales tool, uh, not just as a list of everything we're prepared to make that night. <laughs> Yeah, so on on that note, just because you mentioned language, I was actually working recently on a project regarding languages on menus. And so one of the new trends that I'm seeing on restaurant menus is to put these really, really cool adjectives on menus that serve to like elevate the dish so the restaurant owner can ideally charge more for it and so the thought behind putting these items is hey people think they're going to be higher quality so they're going to ideally come into your restaurant order them you have a high profit margin great everything's great there uh, unfortunately what it turns out is that there's not enough thought being given to do people understand what those adjectives mean and it turns out that even things like braised chicken for example or braised beef not everybody understands what braised actually is and the problem is you have to understand your consumer. The consumer that doesn't understand what braised is, they actually take the opposite learning from the fact that you're putting braised on, your, on the menu. They think that this is a product which is gonna cost a lot more, and they also think that it's a product that's not for them. So anytime you use fancy words that don't have a uh, association uh, in people's minds already, what they wind up doing is they wind up thinking, this is not a product for me and I might not patronize the restaurant or if I do patronize the restaurant, I might not order that product. Yeah, it's so uh, it's so interesting. So I think that's a good segue to to begin to talk about our audience. Right. You, you just said you have to know you have to know your market. You have to know your audience. One of the things I've talked about this before on the show, we were talking about this briefly before we uh, before we hit record. And I was saying one of the. Uh, one of the common threads I see with a lot of struggling restaurants um, is that they, many of them seem to adopt this field of dreams mentality. One of uh, the very early episodes of this podcast, I, I sort of hit that head on, right? Everybody knows Field of Dreams, 1989 movie with Kevin Costner. Here's a voice who tells him, if you build it, they will come. 
right? If he clears his cornfield and he builds a stadium, the players will come and fans will line up to watch these, you know, long dead ball players coming back to life and playing, you know, classic game of baseball, right? If you build it, they will come. Just trust, have faith. Um, and I find that a lot of restaurateurs uh, adopt this mentality, whether they would admit it or not. They say, we're going to do great food, great service in a cool space. Of course, everybody would love to be a part of this here. And that's sort of what they hang their hat on, not stopping to realize that uh, the market now, especially in restaurants, are so saturated. Um, there are better restaurants and more great restaurants now than there were 10, 20, 30 years ago. So we're competing against other restaurants that have great food, great service, and stylish spaces um, that a lot of times uh, it could be solved by the restaurateur uh, stopping and looking around and saying, in my opinion, right, like, what's missing? What do people not have? I see I see that people have this and this and this and this. What don't they have? I always say, you know, what's the problem that, that I'm uniquely qualified to solve? That gets to target market. That gets to understanding our audience. And it gets to this idea of marketing research, you know, because that's all easier said than done. I can sit here on the sidelines and just say, this is what you should do. But this is really what you do. And this is uh, one thing that you really ingrained in me and, and the, my fellow cohorts. So... Talk to me about how how um, how an independent operator would begin to wrap their head around that. And this is not going to be a soundbite answer. I know this is going to be long and complicated, so let's get into it. So one of the first things that I want to say is I want to debunk a very common myth, which, which I think you, you might have mentioned. Uh, market research does not have to be expensive. Finding out what your consumers want does not have to cost an arm and a leg. It can cost an arm and a leg, right? So if you hire a big fancy firm, it, it will cost you lots and lots of money. But the thing is, as an independent operator, you don't have lots and lots of money. So you need to do market research on the cheap, and that's perfectly fine. You literally get the exact same answer, whether or not you hire the big fancy company or you do it on the cheap. The nice part about doing it on the cheap is, you are much closer to your customer and you can get a lot more information than you might get in a very distilled answer from hiring another company. So one of the things, Dr. Baskin, that I got from your class is that good answers come from good questions. And what I find is that, you know, we have to keep like doubling back, right? Like go back, go back, digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And I find that a lot of operators aren't even stopping to ask any questions, let alone dig down to get to the best questions. And that was something that I really got from you because in the course, we basically ran a series of uh, testings through surveys and, and interviews and, and, and all of these things. But at the very beginning, you said you got to get a really good question, a question that if you got the answer to would sort of tell you yes or no, would, would, would direct you as to, as to which directing to go. So for me, it's about stopping and saying, a question as simple as what's missing here? What do people want? What what problem do people have, so to speak? What other questions should they or could they be asking? How, how do they begin to approach that? If they're going to open, I want to open a new restaurant in this neighborhood. How do I begin? So the first thing is 
don't ask yes or no questions. So the goal of listening to your customers is making sure that they have the ability to tell you as much information as possible. So asking yes or no questions is the quickest way to shut down conversation. Because if you say, do you want Mexican? And they say yes, okay end of conversation done right whereas if you ask a bigger question about what are their different types of food preferences why do they like those foods you might get a more deeper nuanced version of what they like and a more deeper nuanced uh, version of the characteristics of the customers in that neighborhood so nuance is really really important you want the questions to be as broad as possible the other thing that i find that's really hard especially for uh really anybody that's that's interviewing folks is it's really really difficult to avoid uh just asking what you want right so you cannot go to a customer and say what kind of restaurant would you like to see in this neighborhood (laughs) some people might be able to tell you that but the majority of people won't and so you're not necessarily going to get at their innermost desires because a lot of times people aren't able to give you their innermost desires and my favorite example of this is if we go into the tech space for a second, if you think about when the iPhone was first developed, nobody in a room, if you'd have asked them, hey, do you think this product that combines email, phone, and apps, um, by the way, you have no idea what an app is at this point either, right. would work and would you like it? Nobody could have come up with that. Uh, and also nobody could have said yes. The key learning comes from identifying problems that people have and then you yourself on the back end try to figure out ways of solving that problem so So, oh yeah sorry go on no so famously steve jobs right wrote in a in his journal or whatever in a in a memo to the to the uh to his senior team said i think there's a point in the future where we're going to need to be so connected that everyone's going to need not only a computer in their home, but a computer in their pocket. And that was the little seed of germination, right? That he saw a problem that was quickly arising that nobody exactly. knew, but he, and he said, and everybody famously, right? They, they did their round table and they said, well, people already have a phone in their pocket. They're not going to put another device in their pocket. And he said, okay, so we'll replace the phone. Just make it so this device can also be a phone. If you're telling me people need a phone and they're not going to carry another device, then we'll just take over the phone space. But he never set out to take over the phone space. He never set out to create iPhone. He set out to create pocket computer. And the only way to make a jive with the market by understanding people's behaviors and and habits. So that story is really interesting. It speaks right to it that he figured out what the what's the problem that people have or what is the problem that he saw that people were going to soon have? Yeah, absolutely. So now let's bring it back to kind of the independent operator restaurant example. So at that point, depending on where you are in the process, if you're just thinking about opening up a restaurant, what you need to think about in terms of your local neighborhood or the place in which you're thinking of opening up the restaurant is Think about people's daily habits. Think about what they do on a daily basis with regards to food. What kind of restaurants do they go to? What kind of restaurants don't they go to? What do they feel as if they're missing in their daily lives? By asking these questions about their lives and their relationships with food, what you can come up with is, this is the white space that is currently not being served 
in potentially a very saturated market. And then you can get a much clearer idea of this is how I can target a restaurant. This is what my concept might be. And this is a menu that might resonate uh, in this uh, in this place. Now, one of the things I'll add here is that that's a snapshot. That's a point in time. You can't rest on your laurels, right? So market research is always ongoing. And so uh, a month from then, two months from then, a year from then, if your sales start sagging, it might be time to go to the drawing board. Maybe what you're offering is no longer solving a problem for your customers. And you need to go back and ask them, what is their current problem? What are they looking for? What do you, what can you do to solve that problem? And, and adding, and adding into that, sometimes uh, it's a thing that you may not have realized and it'll take your customers to tell you, you know, this is what I'm missing, or maybe this is what has changed about your restaurant that is now making me go kind of elsewhere. So when you talk about go and ask your customers, I mean, obviously, surveying your customers or say, surveying people in the area, you know, a, a, you know, a, a base of people uh, within the population in the market you're looking to. But I always think in terms of asking the customers to in, in a in a broader term, right? Like just observing what people, I mean, famously, right? The, you talk, you hear some crazy restaurateurs from 40 years ago. They said, oh, I sat there and I counted how many cars came in and out of the parking lot. I counted how many, you know, in each hour. Like that's a way of asking a question and, and understanding your um, your consumers. Like, like where do people go when they get out of the subway? I think of this in New York, right? Where do people go? You watch 50 people, 100 people get off a train stop after work. Are they going to get a drink? Are they going to get dinner? Are they going straight home? Are they going to pick up food on the way home? Are they going to the grocery store? By understanding where those 50 or 100 people go, you get a better understanding of how this how this group behaves, what, what their natural routines are right now. You, you bring up a great point. Observation can give you a lot of information that the consumer is necessarily, not necessarily willing to give directly to you. And the grocery business has traditionally done a lot of observation well, that where they will just walk around the aisles and just see how people are looking at various products on the shelves, what they're stopping to look at, what they're just walking by, and how they're navigating the store, and they'll use that to make changes. So the exact same thing can be applied to to the restaurant space and you might say well they talk to my waiters and they talk to my servers right all the time and my servers have a pulse on exactly what's going on well they may or may not right many customers don't really want to unload on the server especially when the server is already overstretched so they don't want to tell them hey this dish is bad or this other dish could use more seasoning they don't want to unload that on the server because they just think the server is busy and they'd rather not cause a conflict. They're conflict avoidant and they'd rather just take the meal, pay for it, and then just never show up again. So one of the things that I think the restaurant industry could do more of is essentially put in that observation a piece, right? So you as a manager just sit out in the front and listen to conversations. When was the last time you just took a beat, paused, and just let the atmosphere of your restaurant sink in? I, I think what you'll find is that oft 
the rest the restaurant business is brutal it's quick and fast-paced and you often don't have that time to sit down and really listen to the din of the customer conversations going on around you and oftentimes if you listen particularly after food is uh, brought to the table you'll hear very interesting side comments about the quality of your food and the value of your food uh, another time when those comments typically come up is when the check comes uh, and people are trying to decide how much they should tip there's also offhanded comments about the quality of food even though Theoretically, you shouldn't be tipping based on the uh, quality of food, but people do what they do, right? I I love this, and you brought up this word value, right? And it it gets to this idea of this brand promise, right? That explicitly or implicitly, we make, uh, we as merchants, anybody selling anything, we make a promise with the consumer. We promise to provide this sort of experience with this level of food, blah, 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 right? And then we either deliver on that or don't. Um, And the the delivery or the non-delivery is uh, is subjective because it's in the eyes of the consumer whether they felt like oh that was worth the money we just spent to your point or this is not what i expected or this is not what i wa- was in the mood for right your idea of uh, braised beef right if you didn't know what braised beef was you're you're expecting a steak you see beef you get and then you get braised beef it's it's not it's a very different thing delicious in its own right but very different and if those don't match up it it's sort of um it sort of affects the uh, the consumer impression, which then affects word of mouth and the way that we continue to you know expand the the reach of the brand beyond. So, so it's it really just something as simple as like sitting and watching, sitting and listening. That that's part of it. So what I what I recommend is to triangulate and use multiple methods. Sitting and watching is a great first step, and then after that. Think about the other customers that uh, go to your restaurant. One of the things that first-time researchers often miss is that they will look at their current customers as their sample group, right? So they'll interview the people that go to their restaurant and ask them what they want or don't want. The problem is the people that you're interviewing are already the people who've decided, yes, this is a food that I like. Yes, it's a business that I want to support. And what you're virtually ignoring is all of the other people in the neighborhood that have the ability to go to your place and are choosing not to, even if potentially it meets their requirements in terms of price range or type of food that it serves or ambiance. So what I recommend is in addition to seeing what people are talking about in your restaurant, I would also talk directly to both people in both people that are current customers, people that are former customers, and also people in the neighborhood that have the ability to be customers and figuring out are we not solving a problem for them? Why are they not coming to our to our restaurant? So I'll ask the stupid question, but um, how do you begin to do that? What What are the tools? How do you go, you know, because every, every restaurateur is sitting here listening and saying, yeah, I wish I could find more people that are in the neighborhood that I wish were customers, but how do I find them? How, how do you go about that? How do you start that process? So I think at, at a first, at a first uh, step, the way that you would do that is you want to be outgoing, right? So this becomes very difficult if you're not outgoing. So one of the things you have to do is you just walk up to people and you say, hey, 
can I ask you a few questions? Okay. Another way that you could do this is you could leave a note at the bottom of the receipt saying, hey, we're looking for feedback. It's completely anonymous. Go to this website. Give us some feedback. Uh, and if you include $5 gift card, then all the better, and you'll get a higher response rate. Yep. Now, when you think about people that are not going into your restaurant, that gets a little bit more tricky. So at that point, you have to think about what is my reach, right? So if you're living in an area without a lot of, without, that's not a dense population center. So if you're not living in a New York City, for example, yep. uh, it might involve going into places where people typically congregate. So for instance, libraries might work or uh, town centers or malls uh, and basically asking them questions saying, hey, can I just have five minutes of your time? I'm doing this market research study. It's completely anonymous. And then ask them and ask them the questions that you want to ask them. Another idea and one that I typically uh, tell my classes is that if you're looking more broadly, so if you're trying to reach people that are uh, in a very densely populated, uh, in a densely populated area, one of the things that you could do is you could use an online platform. So things like uh, cloud research is a very nice platform that will let you restrict people by certain demographics, by states. And so that means you can narrow down your target audience, particularly if you live in a densely populated uh, area. So there's a lot of ways to reach people. Part of it requires some boots on the ground approach, but I think it's workable. I love it. So, uh, and I love this idea that you said that um, this is an ongoing, that market research um, doesn't just stop. And so the first question I asked you is, hey, if we were gonna open a restaurant and I knew the neighborhood or I knew the, the city where I wanted to be, how would we go about it? These are some ways you might go about it, right? Observing, looking and see what, what people are naturally already doing, looking at other restaurants, seeing where they're going, what kind of business they're doing on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, going through, asking people, et cetera, et cetera. But then that continues as you, as you have a property, right? So you got a restaurant that's open a year or two or three and data helps teach us, right? Again, we look at our, our menu matrix, right? Looking and see what, what is selling, you know, the product mix, what's selling, what isn't selling, looking at our food costs, what's making us money, what's not making us money. Um, what else? How do you, how do you think of that in terms of, because we think of restaurants a lot of times like a fixed thing. Like mm -hmm. I open this restaurant, this is this concept, that's what it is. This is what we do really well. And there's sometimes where, yeah, it'll just stay that way for five, 10, 20, 30 years. But it doesn't have to, and I think, especially now in such a tumultuous period, um, tell me if I'm wrong here, this is sort of what's required for lots of businesses out there. I, I completely agree with you. Restaurants, just like any other business, has to evolve. And the evolution does not have to be drastic. If the concept is working, maybe the evolution is you change up some dishes on the menu. If the concept itself is not working, then you might need to rethink things to be a little bit more drastic. But part of it is that people are drawn to newness often. And so one of the ways that you can get people to make a very kind of deep and thoughtful decision to try a new place that they haven't otherwise tried is to say, look, this is brand new. There's new things on the menu. We've changed a lot of things. And so if you don't evolve, you're basically losing out on the ability to convert customers of other brands of other restaurants to your own restaurant. And 
just looking at the pandemic, right? We know we've all had to pivot. We know that many of us have embraced takeout in, in ways which we would not have thought possible prior to the pandemic. Yeah. And that's a very quick and easy example of saying, evolution happens because the environment changes and sometimes the environment changes through no fault of our own or the customers sometimes the customer changes and we have to react to that but change is happening whether you like it or not you have to recognize that that change is happening and you have to react to it appropriately now today's episode of restaurant strategy is brought to you by seven shifts Seven Shifts is a modern team management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. Effective team management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially as restaurants start to open back up and expand their teams. Trusted by more than half a million restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to simplify scheduling, easily manage time and attendance, communicate with your team, and retain talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll systems you already use, turning your team into a competitive advantage for your business. Right now, Restaurant Strategy podcast listeners can get three months absolutely free. To get started, visit sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash restaurant strategy to get three months of industry-leading team management for free. As always, that link is in the show notes. How do you how do you think about target audiences? I mean, one way that I've always done this is I've thought in terms of personas. I was working for years. Uh, the last true restaurant where I worked in was Gotham uh, in the heart of New York City, 35 years young, right before the pandemic. Uh, it closed and then reopened after, but I was doing a lot of their um, their marketing. And I used them as an example because there were different personas who came in, right? We had the business, you know, the business dinners, you know, the client dinners, closing dinners, right? We also had the tourists. We also had just had the wealthy people in the neighborhood who were lived in the West Village, one of the, you know, the highest, um, you know, the highest income per square mile, you know, in the country. So business people, we had tourists, we had locals who just had lots of money, and then we had the special event people, people who wanted a really great place to celebrate a birthday or anniversary. It was gonna be one of two or three really nice meals and it was a splurge. They were all coming for the same experience, but they came for very different reasons. And so we appealed to them um, in very different ways. That's how I sort of think about it. I think it's an easy way to wrap their heads around it, but. I want you to tell me or the listeners explain explain if there's a better way that we should be thinking about how we find our how we find our audiences and understand and understanding what they want. So I don't necessarily want to say that there's a better way. I'll just give you a kind of different way to think about it. Great. So one of the things that you mentioned of looking at personas and looking at different reasons why people are going to your restaurants is a great start, right? You need to know who are the major groups that are going to a restaurant. And in addition, what I would add to that is I would think about how profitable those groups are, right? Yeah. So think about is are your tourists your most profitable group? Are your special event people your most profitable group? Are your expense account people their most profitable group? And based on that, you'll develop some sort of hierarchy of your uh, personas. Okay. And once you develop a hierarchy of your personas, you can think about how do I make sure the restaurant is serving all of them, but 
not just all of them. I want to dedicate my efforts to my highest, uh, to my highest potential group. I love that. And it shouldn't just be profitability on a today scale, right? Right now, you know, 30% are special event people and I make X profit on my special event people. You need to think about the future. So you need to forecast, look, if I become a better special event place, what's my potential market of special event people? And what's my potential future profitability? Because it could be the case where, again, we'll go back to COVID, right? COVID is going to start and or is ramping up when you're doing your research. And so based on the environmental factors, those special event people are probably going to go away in the near future unless you do something drastic. So it may not be a group that you want to focus right now on right now, even though they may be the most profitable right now. So it's a combination of figuring out who your uh, kind of personas are that visit your restaurant Think about how they're growing or shrinking uh, in the future and think about how they're going to contribute to your profitability uh, long term. And this, I fear, is where we've lost a whole bunch of listeners because it sounds like a lot of work. Right. So I can't figure out who, you know, what, uh, how, per, how profitable one group is over the other and forecasting what I think, you know, what I think, you know, they're going to bring me over the course of the year or the life and all that. So how do we, how should we think about that and take action on it in a way that's not going to, that's not going to kill us? Because we as restaurant owners are already doing so much. Right. Absolutely. So first of all, what I would do is I would sit down and take a slice of time for yourself, right? So I take a slice of time, you could say the past week, the past two weeks, the past month. Take a look at your bookings and if you and try and figure out what kind of section are they coming from? Why are they going to your restaurant? And Great. it might be easier actually if your slice of time is smaller because you could just call up a few of them and just ask or on a night you could call up a few you could just look why people why are people in your restaurant so that will give you a rough and dirty sense of why people are in your restaurant and then you can extrapolate from there yeah so i love this because this is something we can do moving forward meaning mm -hmm. if we make this a goal and we say the manager's job is to make sure to catalog with a color or a or a letter right and the so it's expense account, it's special event, it's neighborhood people, and it's tourists, right? Everyone gets a letter, and we can just look around the dining room. We can make pretty much an educated guess just based on what we're seeing, what the, what the dynamic is at the table. And we can see, well, if we had to put them into one of those four categories, if I had to give them a, a, a letter, I would say T for tourists. I would say E for expense account. That This is even something you could do moving forward and say, hey, for the next week, I'm going to catalog every I'm going to catalog everything cuz it's not that hard. It's not like most restaurants get 800 tables a night. They might get 50 tables a night or 100 tables a night. So it's it's not no work, but it's not it's not Herculean. And your serve and your servers probably know already. They have a good sense because they yes. see so many tables a night, so many tables a week. They kind of know what are the major reasons that people are coming into their to the restaurant. So one yep. of the first steps I would start with is 
I would talk to my servers and get a ballpark estimate of why people are going to my restaurant and what they think kind of the percentages are. And once you've developed a strategy kind of based on what those percentages are, one of the things that uh, people are missing is to tailor a serving strategy to each group, right? So if you are an expense account, presumably you have a lot of money you want to impress. So you could tell your server, your servers, hey, recommend these types of dishes, these types of drinks. Whereas if you're a tourist, you're probably wanting to see this is what this place is known for, like the dish, right? And yep. so that's a thing that you want to steer them towards. And then they're left yep. happy because this exactly matches kind of what they're looking for. But just from a, a, a simple uh, place of just trying to uh, – just information gathering, mm -hmm. we can say, hey, for the next two weeks, we're going to catalog every table with one of those four letters, right? E for expense, T for tourist, L for local, you know, S for special event. And we can then track over the course of the night. We do 200 covers, and we can get a pie chart and say, hey, 40% of them were special events. 30% were – uh, expense accounts. We can get that, and then we can dig down deeper because we can um, we can put that up against our POS system, and we can see how much each of those factions generated in revenue. Because maybe it was forty percent of the of the audience size, but it actually made up for sixty percent of the revenue that was driven. For example, because they're they're apt to spend more, which kind of gets to your point of really understanding. Um, your profitability. This goes along with um, uh, Peter Fader's idea of uh, customer lifetime value and all the work he's done with customer centricity. You know, really understanding, you know, who is the who is the minority that's bringing in the majority of your of your revenue. What I like about this is that this seems like a cool project. It's work for sure, but it's a fun project that you do over the course of two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, um, you've got a pretty good snapshot of what the breakdown in your room is and roughly how much revenue, the percentage uh, share that each of those groups have. And then with that, armed with that information, you can then make decisions about who uh, who makes the most sense to target and then how are we gonna target them? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, exactly. And again, just to reiterate, what we're giving you guys is all of these sorts of ideas some may work better than others, right? Depending yep. on how much time, how outgoing you are, et cetera. And one of the key things is you take a little bit of information from each and you try to triangulate on what the who are your consumers, what do they want, and who is, and how to bring in more, essentially. So let me ask you a question that's, that's sort of related, but, but also sort of unrelated. Let's say you got a really great restaurant, right? The food's good, the service is good, all of that. You've got a good, loyal fan base, but it's small. So basically, mm -hmm. you found your people, mm -hmm. but they're not enough to keep you alive. So how do you either go out and find more of them, or how do you make the determination whether, well, this isn't a group that's worth fighting for, I have to do something else to target a different audience? How, how should we begin to face that kind of question, because I know that's something that a lot of restaurants face. Yeah, so, so that's, a that's a tough question because it could really go either way. What I would start with is figuring out how many of your loyal customers there are and also how many people in the neighborhood have the characteristics of these loyal customers. So basically, you have to identify whether there's 
not very many people of this type. So basically, yep. you have no mark. Your market, your potential market is tiny. Or yeah. there's a lot of people of this type, but they just don't know about you. So your potential market is large, but they, but you're not doing any advertising. So you're not bringing people in. So that's a very key question to answer. So how do you do that? How do I, you know, I say, hey, my, my impression was that there are so many people in this neighborhood who would love this, but I've only found, I feel like I've only found 15% of my total market how do you begin to tell if you're right or wrong? I mean, so are there tools the, so, out so, there? So what I would say is a couple of things. So I would say talk to people in the neighborhood uh, and cross that cross that with what are the people in your restaurant saying. So are, do they have the same opinions? Do they have the same problems? Do they have the same preferences in food? So that will tell you are if the rest of the people are similar to these people or not similar to these people. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is I would start to look at competitors, right? So competitors are a wealth of data. And I'm sure you've looked around your restaurant and you've tried and figure out you've tried to figure out who are my biggest competitors in terms of who is the closest to what I am actually doing. And so what you want to see is how are they doing, right? And how are people perceiving them? Because oftentimes, if you have a very close competitor, people will be comparing you to them, both when you talk to them, but also online. So I think a really nice source of data uh, that we actually haven't talked about on, on this podcast yet is uh, Yelp. Twitter, uh, all of these review sites. And I know how much we hate them because people just rant a lot on them. But they're helpful if you can just look at them without getting angry. Because, <laughs> yes, the people who hate you are kind of the most likely to write something. But there's a lot of information that you can isolate, right? So, yes, they might say something that doesn't make any sense but you might be able to isolate oh this dish might be over seasoned maybe the preparation is different if a lot of people are mentioning the same things so while i don't necessarily tell you to put a lot of stock in any one review if multiple people are saying the same thing that's kind of a problem and right. so if you look at the competition so let's say you're a pizza restaurant right if you look at your competition uh in the pizza space you're gonna find out that people are comparing you to others on their reviews probably uh, and and your reviews and so that will give you a sense of do people just not like pizza or do they just not compare you favorably to your competitors so one of the things that I always talk about is this idea that I think we have to give our um, we have to give our audience our, our customers a shorthand with which to talk about us, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, what do we want them to say? What do I want their impression to be? You brought this up about, you know, the, the perception of the brand versus the perception of the others. This sort of gets the idea of um, positioning, which I work in restaurants. Restaurants are a, a very saturated market just over the last 30 years. And so, you like, you have to. You have to have a point of view. You have to have a perspective because, you know, uh, nobody needs another pizza place. Like, okay, but why? But like, why do we need another pizza place? Or why did you, the restaurant owner, feel like we in this neighborhood needed another pizza place? And I think whether people ask that or not, um, 
that's what they're thinking. They're thinking like, okay, but, but why? Because I already got a place I love. I know it. I love it. It's convenient. I'm already collecting the loyalty points. Like, okay, why would I switch? Why would I switch? How do you begin to think about that? Again, sort of hooking on to what you were just talking about. So positioning is really, is really, really important. And you, you, you hit the nail on the head there that if you don't have a crystal clear positioning to your consumers, they're just going to keep with the status quo. They're just going to go to the restaurant that they have always gone to. And if I can circle back to when we were talking about the brand promise, positioning ties in intrinsically with the brand promise because your positioning will influence your brand promise and will influence what your consumers will expect of you when they come into your restaurant. Yep. And so what I caution you when you're coming up with this uh, positioning is there's a sweet spot here. You can, you can promise the world but are you able to deliver? Because at the end of the day, if you go back to the consumer psychology of why consumers uh, return to restaurants, they return based on their satisfaction. And satisfaction is their expectation as compared to reality. The expectation being set by the brand promise. Yep. And so some restaurants operate very profitably by setting a very low expectation of this is just a late night hangout spot. Our food is yep. crappy and uh, you're not going to get very much. But you come in, you're you're drunk, you're hungry. Great. We're good. We feed you. And you keep on coming back because you're satisfied because what you got is actually so much more than what the brand has promised you. I So I love this idea, but but let's let's dig a little bit further because the difficulty is, right, when when the market is so noisy. Right. There's so many ads, there's so many everything. Right. It's so hard to cut through the noise. And so we have to get attention somehow. So it's this idea of under promise over deliver. But if you under promise, nobody's going to come in because you're like, that's not a really good promise. So I'm just going <laughs> to. So then. So talk to So talk to me about that. How do you how do you thread that needle? So again, you have to think about what are the brand promises in your area, right? So if there's a lot of people that are brand promising on the lower end, then you're probably going to want to brand promise something a little bit higher. If there's nobody brand promising on the lower end and there's a spot in the market for this late night hangout with like really cheap, greasy food, that's kind of where you want a brand promise. So it goes back to seeing what are all your competitors? What are all what are they all doing? What do the customers broadly want in the marketplace? What are they missing? And try to figure out a situation where you're placing your brand promise in an area where your customers are kind of missing something. And I, I feel like we're talking about the fact that, you know, this is super easy. Everybody should be able to do it. But I want to say that it's not easy. It's actually very, very difficult. And But it is an exercise that, while difficult, reaps rewards. And the key underpinning is getting data, getting information, and using that information to understand who are the groups of customers in the market that I have versus I could potentially have and yep. figuring out how to get them to to my restaurant, whether that's uh, advertising, whether that's word of mouth, 
whether that's changing my concept to better meet their needs. Uh, any of that is kind of fair game. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a meld between who the customers are and what they want and what you're offering. And that's circling back to, I think, the very beginning of this podcast, right? The very yep, beginning yep. of this podcast, we talked about how it's very easy to say, look, I like to make pizza. I think I make darn good pizza. Let me just make pizza. But at yep. the end of the day, you need to know if that's what your customers want. And if there's a big so, enough group of customers that want the type of pizza that you're going to create. It's so funny. So you just brought up something that I haven't even really voiced yet. I've been I've been writing about it and sketching about it and I haven't really published it yet. But this idea of like two ways to market a product. You come up with a product and you figure out who might want that product or the more successful way of looking around see who needs something and you craft a solution um, to that. Um, but the answer to that, um, if you build it, they will come. If you build it where people need it, so like people want to build, you know, want to, I, I love pizza, I want to do a great pizza place, there's probably a better where. There, there's probably somewhere you could do that. It might just not be where you're looking, right? So I, I spent, uh, you know, the last eight years living in Brooklyn. Like, let me just tell you, like, Brooklyn is full. They don't need any more pizza. Um, we certainly don't need any more mediocre pizza. We, we've even got great pizza. Like, we just, like we're full. Like, we're full. So... But there's somewhere else that's probably not full. Uh, I just moved to this new town in New Jersey. I hate to say it, but I have not yet found good pizza. So there's an opening here from what I can tell. There's, there's white space here. And I'm sure you can go to a lot of other places in the world and, and find that. So then that's a hard decision. It's tough to say, yeah, well, you got to get up and move. Go to a different market. They'll, um, you know, they'll embrace you. Um, because there's nothing as good as what you're doing, but that is the other piece to this as well. Like understanding the 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 who and the where are indelibly connected. I I agree with that, and I think that moving is not necessarily as bad as you make it sound. Right, so we're not moving across the U.S. in many cases, right? Yep, so yep. it could be as simple as moving across the river, right, and looking for real estate in a in a different place. And yep. so if you look across you know, not just the restaurant industry, but the grocery industry, right? People make this calculation all the time, especially for established brands. So once you already have a chain uh, and you have you have an established brand, you know what your concept is, the way to go about expanding that chain is not to say, you know, it is to figure is not to say, I don't know where to go. Let me just plop wherever and people will come. You don't want to do that. You want to do some actual research, figure out where their customers that might uh, that your chain might appeal to, and then put your place there. And a lot. And once you start getting big, a lot of money winds up going into figuring out real estate and figuring out where you should be placing your store because uh, your store or your restaurant because the real estate becomes fairly expensive and you want to make sure that once you have something that's big and fairly established you want to make sure that you figured out the exact best place uh to put it yeah this is something that the chains that the restaurant chains all do really well like like applebee's doesn't go into a market unless they know that the demographics in the market, you know, most closely parallel their 10 most um, profitable stores across the country. Like there now there's, I mean, there's a science we're talking about, mm -hmm. right? This is a science. 
um, there's art to it. That was one of my big takeaways from from the course uh, that that we took together. Is that there is it's a it's a blend of art and science, but not to discount the science. There is some there there's a right way and a wrong way to gather information. There's a right question to ask to get the most productive answer that you you possibly can to make really informed creative decisions later, and that's where the art comes in. Exactly. And so what I want to kind of emphasize to, to the listeners is try when you ask the question, try to dig deep beyond the surface answer. So why are people saying the things they are saying? Uh, why are people posting the things they are posting? You want to dig beyond what people give you on a first blush and think about what is the psychology behind why they're doing what they're doing because that will give you that will give you that will lead you rather to the exact point and the exact information that you need so i want to scratch a little bit deeper there because um into the psychology conversation because most of us don't have a degree in cultural anthropology um and i can see how it would be very very uh helpful how can we how do we do that how do we dig down and get the answer below the answer that the things that they're that they're not telling us, but but they believe. How how do we how do we get into the minds of our consumers? So the way that I usually think about it is, you want to ask why questions. You want to ask many questions so that you can see themes running across their answers. So sometimes people will answer questions about their day, their food preferences, uh, their their life in a variety of different ways, but they can't articulate what their problems are and what the common themes across all their answers are. So it's our job as researchers to try and get a preponderance of data from them and then figure out what is a common theme. A lot of a lot of the problems that folks find and create new products about or new restaurant concepts about are really problems that they see through asking these why questions and then interpreting why do people have this problem? Or they'll do an observation of people at a restaurant or in their home and see, wow, people are doing this weird thing or they're taking a lot of time or putting in a lot of effort to do this other really weird thing. And wouldn't it be really helpful if there was a meal or a takeout option or a product to help solve this problem? People themselves can't necessarily articulate what problems they have, but what they can show you is this these things take too much effort these things take too much time because time for people is very valuable and things that people wind up spending a lot of time on are things that you can help them with i love this i have loved this conversation we're coming to the end of our time and i want to make sure that i give you a few moments to just talk about how to make this actionable you talked about going out with a clipboard and interviewing people what sort of questions, how many questions should be in there? What do you think is a reliable data set? How many people do we have to interview at the mall to be able to get um, to get data that we can use? How many um, how many survey responses do we need if we're asking people at the end of their meal to to log that? How about how many questions should that be? If we could just make it super tactical right now. Right. So the way that I think about it is you want to get as much data as possible, but without impinging on people's time. So if you're doing kind of quick uh, stops at a mall or quick stops at a restaurant, you should really have 
very few questions, uh, very broad questions, and don't take above five to 10 minutes. And that's, that's really even pushing it, right? Uh, yep. What you want to do is keep it short, sweet, and people will be more likely to give you uh, their attention. Uh, how many people? Unfortunately, there's not a clear answer to that. It's enough people until you see people are repeating themselves. So that's kind okay. of what, what I tend to think about as the kind of closing. When I see that people are repeating themselves, when I see that the themes are starting to be very similar, then I know I kind of hit the nail on the head to the answer to my research question. And for qualitative research, sometimes that can be as few as five uh, or 10. So it doesn't have to be a lot. On the other hand, if you're doing something numeric, so you're trying to categorize uh, what types of people you have in your restaurant over the course of a two week period, at that point, you need a little bit more uh, people because you want to be really sure of your numbers. And the more data points you have, the more accurate and the less noisy your numbers are going to be. So if you're working with anything quantitative, I would recommend more. For qualitative, I look at when is the theming relatively clear. And at that point, I'll do one interview and basically just test out that theme. Like, does that theme work? And yeah, I love it. that and I love that's it. pretty that's pretty much it. Yeah. And then the other thing, right? So we're giving them tools. We're giving the listeners tools to go. I mean, listen, introduce yourself to people. Uh, you know, gather gather the information. This is uh, this is an excuse to go learn more about your people, uh, about or the about the your perspective people, the people that you think might love what you have. Um, I think there's an opportunity there. And then the other thing, and I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of this, we talked about this a little while ago earlier in this interview, but this idea of, uh, of gathering information about who's actually dining in your restaurant. Um, I gave the example of Gotham. Gotham had maybe four personas, right? Like pretty much I could look around the dining room on a Thursday night and everybody fit into one of those four groups, tourists, expense accounts, right? Locals or special occasions. There was a restaurant right near my, uh, my son's preschool. And famously, we would always go there on Friday nights. I could pretty much look around and it was young families. It was couples on like, like a first date, second date, or it was like tables of ladies. Like it was pretty much, now, were there a couple of guys there that were all, yeah, I mean, everybody didn't fit in so neatly, but for the most part, 95% of the people on a Friday night fit into one of those three buckets. Young families, couples on a, on a first, second, third date, or tables of ladies, right? Ladies night out. So I would challenge you to, um, to do that, to see if you can categorize all your tables, keep track of how many covers, what percentage each persona made up, and what sort of revenue they all, um, they all drove. That was, something, uh, that was something we talked about. And Dr. Bascom was also talking about finding opportunities. Don't just drop in, but make it a dedicated thing. You sit for a half an hour and you listen to, you listen to conversations. You hear what happens when, uh, when food gets dropped, when, when the check gets dropped, and do that for a half hour chunk, half hour chunk, half hour, an hour. To, you know, do it at various times over the course of a, of a week or two and see what you learn, because invariably you're gonna learn something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that at the end of the day, our goal here is to make you a more successful uh, operator, a more successful restaurateur. And so once you learn whatever it is you learn, then it feeds back to your restaurant. And don't be afraid to make changes based on what you learn. It's, um, it's such an important point that we've all learned the hard way over the last two or three years. 
Um, again, the, I, I hate the dreaded pivot word, right? It, it's not about pivoting. It's not like we did this and now let's do something else. It, the word really is evolution. I did this, but now I have to do this. Or now I have to do this in addition to. That, that we're always growing and changing. We like to think that it's a fixed concept because we're used to seeing an Applebee's and an Applebee's got that right and then they just kept making more Applebee's and Applebee's is what it is and it's what it's always been. But most restaurants don't have the luxury of that and we have to continue to serve our, our audiences in the ways that they need to be served. And through observation, through interview, by, uh, by doing marketing research, we, we understand what it is they want and how we can, how we can better serve them. So, so it, it's funny that you mentioned the word pivot because I hate the word pivot also it. because some of some of these changes can be just so minor. So we talked about some potential changes me, being uh, on menus, right? Yep. That's a very minor change. It, it's I wouldn't even call it an evolution. It's just an incremental change yep. that could potentially have very large ramifications for your business in terms of profitability. So you. So yes, sometimes if your business is not doing super well, you might need a large pivot. But in most cases, the outcome of this is not going to be a large pivot. It's going to be a small incremental change that's going to have uh, kind of positive ramifications for your business. I love it. I always think of the, the best example of this that comes to mind is when I was working at Gotham uh, in New York City. We were famous for our apple tart to tan. And every night we would sell out. Every night we would sell out. One of the things that we learned is that we started really pissing people off when we would always sell out because people are like, oh, you're already out of that. So all we did was take it off the menu and we just hand sold it because they could make 22, right? We had 22 pots. We could make 22 of them every night. And when they were gone, they were gone. And so what ended up happening is like, oh, you still have it tonight. Great. People were overjoyed. Meanwhile, if we just, if we didn't say anything and they said, oh, don't you have the apple tart to tan tonight? Then the response was easy. So no, it's, we only have a limited number. We've, we've sold them all. We've sold them all tonight. And it then gave us a sales opportunity. We could greet the table. Hi, welcome everyone. Glad to have you here tonight. Listen, I just wanted to let you know our famous apple tart to tan. We only make 22 of them a night. I still have a couple available. If you want me to reserve one, you have to order it now. It's not going to be ready. It's not, they're not going to be here anymore in an hour and a half when you're ready for it. And so it's this like supply and demand thing. We're able to charge more for the item. We're able to really serve people, get them really excited, meet their expectations, all of that stuff. And we're able to sell more. You get done with a big fancy meal. There's plenty of tables who are like, oh, I'm stuffed. I don't want to do dessert. But here we got the dessert order an hour and a half before they were ready to have dessert. And so we actually used it to drive more sales that way as well. It, it was something that we learned the hard way by by just observing what was going on in the dining room. Exactly. And in some cases, some restaurants can have different uh, dishes, which take different amounts of time to prep. And so if there are dishes, so for instance, uh, Tapa's restaurants may have paella uh, and paella takes a very long time to make as compared to the tapas, which can, which can come out very quickly. And so rather than just say, look, here's tapas, here's paella, and then somebody orders just the paella, and it takes ages, mm -hmm. just by forewarning people that this is a thing on your menu, just be aware, it actually improves the customer experience quite a bit. Yep, and it gives us a sales opportunity to say, hey, this is going to take quite a bit. I might recommend getting a couple of these little tapas for the table while, while you wait. I mean, there's so many, exactly. there's so many opportunities for sure. Um, 
listen, Dr. Baskin, I've loved this conversation. Um, I'm going to have you back. I promise I'm going to have you back. Because um, I think what's going to happen is that there are going to be a lot of questions from the listeners. Um, and uh, and I would love to compile them and uh, put those questions in front of you again after this. Um, the main thing that I want uh, that I want everyone to take away from this is that it's about learning, about understanding who you're serving, what it is they want, so you can better provide them with what they want, right? It's that Jerry Maguire thing, help me help you. Help your people give you money. If you can, if you can fill a need in their lives, and the more that we ask, the more we observe, the more we listen, um, we can get better at doing this. Again, it was one of my, one of my biggest takeaways uh, from the MBA program uh, that I went through, was uh, came through uh, my time spent with uh, with this guy, um, which it really came down to, you're going to get better answers by uh, by asking better questions. And if you can just get better at listening and, and, and all of that, um, uh, it just helps us be better in business. Um, Dr. Baskin, any last words of wisdom for the uh, for the listeners? I think we've said it all. I think you summed it up quite well. So thank you, Jeff. Listen, um, where can people go to learn more about you? I know you write a lot. I know you, you sort of do the circuit on podcasts. Um, are there any in particular uh, that might be of note uh, to send people to after this conversation? So I've recently been on the Thrive podcast if you're interested in learning more about uh, worker retention and worker recruitment, since I know that's a very hot topic in the restaurant industry right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I've done a lot of work on that. Uh, so the Thrive podcast uh, is... Uh, a good place to check that out. If you're looking at some of my academic work, uh, Google Scholar is a great place. And I also have a LinkedIn for uh, contacting purposes if you want to chat. Perfect. We will put all of those links in the show notes so people can connect with you uh, if they want to uh, ask you questions directly. Uh, listen, I really appreciate uh, you being here, taking the time out of your day. Enjoy, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Chip. Again, I want to thank Dr. Baskin for taking time out of his day to sit and talk with us. All of the links are in the show notes, so go uh, do more research, uh, learn more, and uh, by all means, reach out to Dr. Baskin if you've got further questions uh, to this episode. As always, you can also reach out to me, Chip, at ChipClose.com. That's C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E.com. It's the best way to reach me, and uh, as anyone will tell you, I respond to each and every piece of email that I get, so please reach out. Um, as always, I want to remind you that if you are are interested in learning more about my coaching programs, please uh, reach out and uh, schedule a time on my calendar for a free 45-minute strategy session. Again, go to restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Thanks again, guys. I will see you next time.